Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. the 14th of December. And so we are in our Advent reading and our countdown to Christmas in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Where in the Word are you today? Let me encourage you to be in the Word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves as his agent of grace and an ambassador of of his kingdom. So one day when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. So that's the opening verse of chapter 14 of the Gospel according to Luke. Here's what I want you to do as you study through Luke 14 today. I want you to notice um, the, the context and to whom Jesus is speaking. Like, what's going on? So he has obviously been invited to a feast, to a dinner party. He has been invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, notably on the Sabbath. Pause there for just a moment and note what happens in the next verse. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, that's clearly not another guest at the event. That's clearly a servant at the event. So consider that the Pharisee, is requiring someone to work on the Sabbath in order to host a dinner party. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Jesus took the man aside and healed him and then sent him away. And he said to them, the them here are the lawyers and the Pharisees gathered at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees to dine on a Sabbath where they are requiring other people to work and serve them. Context is really, really important. Jesus said to them, which of you having a donkey, in other texts, a son, or an ox who had fallen into a well on the Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? Well, they could not reply to these things. Jesus goes on to them to then tell them a parable uh, about being invited to a feast and the way that people choose the place of honor. And he says, you know, that's not what you should do. You should sit at the lowest seat in order that uh, the host might exalt you. For one who exalts himself, this is verse 11, for one who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He goes on to uh, talk then about... uh, the man who does the inviting. So that's the posture of those who are invited. The next portion, beginning at verse 12, is the posture of those who do the inviting. And then there is a conversation with one of the other guests at the event. 
picking up in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him, so we're obviously still in the same context, we're still at the home of the ruler of the Pharisees or a ruler of the Pharisees. We are still at an, you know, guests at a party on the Sabbath, during which other people are having to work in order that this dinner party would take place. So one of those who reclined at the table with him said to him, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's obviously assuming he will be among them. And Jesus uh, then talks about the great banquet or the wedding feast where the people who were first invited don't come. And so the, uh, the host sends out the invitation to others who likewise have all kinds of excuses of why they don't come. And eventually uh, the, those who are invited to the banquet are literally the least of these. Jesus goes on to, there's then a pivot. There's a major change in the conversation at verse 25. The audience changes. So you have to note that. Like, take note of that as you're reading. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me but does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so this conversation about the cost of discipleship and the Uh, the worth of tasteless salt, comes in the context of a conversation about how we respond to Jesus. How do we respond to Jesus? Do we invite him in, but really only so we can watch him carefully and catch him? Do we respond to his invitation to come in to ultimately the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is the invitation that God sends to everyone to come? But do we come with our own agenda Or do we come as disciples? Are we willing to turn from everything and count it as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus? So Luke 14 today on this 14th day of December in the season of Advent in our countdown to Christmas. Next up, Dr. Zach Jenkins. Vaccines are rolling now. We're going to talk about that next. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, hey, it is good to have you back again. Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University with some good news. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Isn't it fun to be the bearer of good news? <laughs> For once, right? Right, right. So um, it's been a long, we've been having this conversation now for many, many months. And we now have some very, very good news. Uh, talk with us about the Pfizer vaccine and rolling out literally right now on trucks across America. Yeah, so obviously the vaccine was approved on Friday by the FDA after quite an extensive uh, panel discussion on Thursday. And so they've started sending their drop shipments around two different states, and then the states are going to distribute them within their own boundaries to the locations that they, they've identified as being the best places to distribute this vaccine. It's a little bit more difficult to distribute this one because it requires deep cold storage. So they can only put it in so many locations within a state, especially as, as we're still limited in some of our quantities at this point in time. Um, but ideally by uh, Christmas, really, we're hearing that we should start seeing these different uh, immunizations start, start to take place. 
So we're going to see, you know, frontline healthcare workers, obviously, first in line. Um, I have a friend at church who happens to be the director of the ER at a major regional medical center where I live. Um, and, you know, and he, he has the full expectation that they're going to start immunizing uh, that particular staff. I mean, probably tomorrow. Like they're they're thinking that this is going to begin pretty quickly. That first group of people is obviously uh, discreet. And then we start talking about, you know, waves beyond that, numbers beyond that. Um, there, I think they're hoping for some 20 million people by the end of the year, by the end of this calendar year, by the end of 2020. That's a pretty extraordinary number. Um, Zach, remind us how important it is and what percentage of the population would need to be vaccinated against the coronavirus before we would begin to see a real change in terms of uh, of the numbers across the country. So in order to achieve herd immunity, we think, and this is just the best guess at this point in time, that we need to have about 75% of the population either vaccinated or exposed to COVID to really uh, achieve achieve that status we're looking for and prevent the spread of COVID further. Um, based on the prevalence data that was just shared during the panel discussion by the CDC um, with the FDA, they had indicated that their estimates suggest maybe 50 million people have encountered COVID or so. And we all, at that point in time, we only know about 15 million cases that were positive. So they're estimating it's a little bit more than that. Um, so if that puts it in perspective, 50 million out of 330 million is not quite 75 million or, or 75%, right? So we still need to get distributed. Okay, um, let's take a very, very brief break. Um, when we come back, let's talk about, you know, the, the people who are particularly um, concerned and maybe nervous about um, receiving a vaccine, about vaccines in general. Um, and then um, we're going to maybe you and I just sort of range around uh, um, among other COVID-19 news that's out there, um, you helping us read with discernment what we're hearing or process it with discernment what we're hearing. I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, and we're talking all things COVID. We'll be right back. Go, tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're talking all things COVID. Um, there are a number of people who are concerned, and 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 I would say, you know, there's like pockets or groups of people who are concerned as well. Talk, talk with us a little bit about the concerns that um, different constituencies maybe have. I don't even know if I'm using that word right. Uh, how do you talk about people in in groups without making it sound like you're just putting everybody in a group? But um, why are women? nervous about the vaccine? Why are African-Americans um, concerned about receiving the vaccine? Like what, what's going on out there in the wider culture? So broadly speaking, we have two big groups of people um, when it comes to vaccines, especially related to this one. You have those who I would call vaccine hesitant, and then you have those who are really just kind of against vaccines to begin with. Um, so what we've seen with COVID specifically is a pretty large number of people are in that vaccine hesitant group. Um, there's so many messages going around on social media that are driving a lot of these discussions, and there's not really a lot of uh, really truth in some of these things at times. And so the problem you run into is if that's what people are reading, as a, a pastor had a long time ago said, trash in, trash out. Um, so, so I think what you run into in those, those situations is just mixed messages. They, they feel that it's it's come out very fast. African-Americans are a bit of an interesting community when it comes to this, too. Um, they have a pretty negative history when it comes to some different medical 
procedures and vaccines in the past. Um, they had actually been uh, exper experimented on in very unethical manners. And, and so really, they, there's a bit of a cultural hesitancy in that group. So right now, I, I think it's less than 50% of African-Americans have indicated that, that they're interested in the vaccine at this point in time. Um, so that kind of is a little concerning when we think about what this means in the grand scheme of things with achieving that 75% goal that we're shooting for. Um, but there are other things going around, like some some messages about um, whether this, for example, can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, mm. which is a nervous uh, syndrome disorder. And, and some of the data there would suggest that I, th I think in the study of 40 some million people or 40 some thousand people, there are about four people in that group that did receive the vaccine that did go on to develop that. And the placebo, placebo group didn't actually have that. However, if you take a step back and you look at actual rates for Guillain-Barre syndrome in the general uh, population, it's actually the same. So what we can say with that is it probably wasn't the vaccine. We, we can't prove that 100 percent because it's the same rate that you'd see like normally in your average person. Um, but people are kind of going around it with that. Uh, there are there were some serious effects that were identified, even though most of the things were just common things we would typically think of with vaccines. The, those serious things ha have made people concerned that could this happen to me? Um, really, I, I think the important thing to keep in mind there is these serious issues we see with any other medical device or product ever that gets tested. Um, I mean, if you open a package label for any of these medications that are out there, you'll see very similar things. Serious reactions can occur, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, but people are leaping listened, on this. I mean, if you've ever listened to an ad for any like anything, the list of things that can happen if you take it are really, really long. Yeah. I mean, like, know, I'm just I, like, I, I'm, actually... I'm, and that's not, that's not me advocating for people to take the vaccine. That's me saying, hey, <laughs> people tend to take stuff when they need it. And they tend to then weigh the risks against their desire to feel better or to, um, or to have some improved outcome in relationship to um, what they're suffering. And so, you know, exactly. I think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how individuals and families, you know, weigh the, the costs and benefits of, um, you know, of particular therapeutics that are available in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, do I take an aspirin or not? It's the same question, right? I mean, it's, I mean, and we, we know that like aspirin is considered a really, 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 really safe medication, but it has potential side effects. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up aspirin. Uh, there's a lot of people that theorize today if aspirin were to hit the market, it would not be over the counter <laughs> because of all the issues <laughs> you can't see with it. Um, but but yeah, insofar as as far as this product goes, um, some other things that have been going around. So there there are a lot of vaccines in development. People are concerned, um, especially on our side of the aisle, um, coming from a faith based background, specifically a Christian background. Do these have aborted fetal cells in them? Um, the answer to these messenger RNA vaccines is they do not. So the technology that was originally used to – originally developed behind this, um, this whole theory of can I use messenger RNA, they did use a fetal cell line back in the day when that did occur. But these two vaccines are not actually using that technology themselves. Or, I mean, excuse me, are not actually using aborted fetal cells in any of their developmental processes themselves. There and they're are not using it to ones. produce, and they're not using it in the produ in the ongoing production of exactly. the vaccines either. And that exactly. that I think is an important distinction to make because that won't be true universally about vaccines that come um, following this one or on the heels of this one, uh, both here and around the world. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. The, yeah. Well, 
for these particular platforms, they, they certainly will not use that. There are some out there that are a little bit more ethically questionable, like the AstraZeneca one that's going to come out or, or could come out. That one, um, I know that some analysts, at least in the Christian side of the aisle, have looked at and they, they feel that maybe it's not the best one if you have a choice mm -hmm. um, because it does have some concern related to, to some of that content. Um, but those are those are very fair discussions that we're having. Um, some other concerns people have are about liberty. So am I going to be tracked by the federal government? Am I going to be forced to take a vaccine? And those are fair questions to have as well. Um, with regards to being tracked by the government, at least at this point in time, you have to opt into it. Like there, mm. there are screenshots going around of these vaccine cards and all they are, it's a record for you to keep for yourself to bring to other physicians that may have or other or other places that may give you this vaccine. These are all two dose series. So what that really means is if you're going from location A to location B, as vaccines may be available in different spots, you want to make sure you get the same vaccine. And that's what they're going to look at with these cards. What was the date that you have it? What vaccine product did you have? Because we're probably going to have more than one of these circulating. So, um, so, so Zach, not you, you probably wouldn't know this because you're a young, healthy person with no foreign anything in your body. But anybody listening right now who's had an implant of any kind, of any foreign anything, has a card in their wallet. People, I mean, you, I'm just saying that, like, the, 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 the notion that I would get a card with vaccine information on it, I have those um, related to vaccines that I got before I traveled to Africa doing mission work so that I would know what I was vaccinated against so that if I was ever asked, I'd be able to say, like, people who think that that's some sort of conspiracy, like it, it makes it possible for you to go and do the things you want to do. So if you, if you don't ever want to leave your own community, then, you know, that, that's one thing. But if you want to leave your own isolated community and interact with other people, the, the, the risk that you bring into those um, larger environments is going to require that you be vaccinated against the thing that none of the rest of us want to get. Certainly if you well, want it, the liberty to like travel on an airplane, like I totally and get truth that. Be told, uh, so, so this card that I'm referencing isn't even for that purpose. It's just a medical record for you to have on hand. It's not actually going to be used for identification. Right. Purposes. It's because if I'm in an accident, yeah. I want somebody to know what else is in my body other than body parts. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in this case, it's a little, I mean, I recognize that I'm making a parallel that probably a doctor would never make, but people listening are going to understand what I'm talking about. So anyway, I, uh, yeah, um, I want to encourage people to, um, you know, be prudent, make, be discerning, make your decisions. It's not like it's going to be available to most of us uh, in the next few weeks anyway. Um, but hopefully by the end of April, something like what? 20 million Americans, 50 million Americans will, will have been vaccinated. Yeah, I, th I think by the end of uh, March, we may be up to that 50 million mark. Wow. See, and that would be extraordinary. So let's celebrate that we've basically landed on the moon this week. Like, right? I mean, yeah. in terms of our and, generation and, and our experience, this has been extraordinary. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And I'll be honest. So I, I watched the the panel um, because it was available live. It was streaming. It's the first time and I think I've ever had like an because open you're hearing. a nerd and you would do that, which we appreciate. <laughs> well, I was trying to keep up on it, but it was actually really fascinating to listen to as well. And, and I actually felt a lot better hearing the people have these discussions. I'm like, oh, that's a really good question. They're asking Pfizer right now. You know, mm -hmm. those were those were things that were going through my head. 
and, and they went after Pfizer on things. It's not like the government just basically, or at least this agency just basically said, hey, yeah, let's just take this. They're like, no, 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 Pfizer, we want follow-up studies. We want safety data on X, Y, and Z. We want to know these things. Yeah. Um, there's a reason that the panel voted 17 to 4 with 4 actually saying no. I'm not ready to move forward with an emergency use authorization at this time because they were trying to look at all angles with this product. It wasn't a unanimous vote. So I think I think that speaks to the process being there to help protect people. Um, and, and, you know, the, the data about allergies in Europe, for example, that people were concerned about in, in the UK, they actually were asking Pfizer specifically about that. They want more data on those kinds of things moving forward. So, like, they're really paying attention to this. It's in their best interest to get this right. If they don't, no one's ever going to get a vaccine ever again, right. most likely. No, that's, exa- that's exactly right. They have a, they they certainly are interested in making sure that it's safe because they're actually concerned about the health and welfare of people. But also the future of vaccines and the trust that we place in the government um, is, is a part of this conversation as well. Zach, we got to leave it right there. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Um, looking forward to, you know, some of these trends that we're seeing across the country in terms of rising numbers and ICU beds uh, maxing out in places like the Central Valley of California. Certainly looking for those uh, headlines to turn in the coming weeks um, and for good news ahead uh, on the coronavirus globally, not just here in the United States. So, Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Okay, I have a couple of follow-up questions from people. Will we know um, who the manufacturer is? Well, right now, if you're in the United States of America, the only vaccine that will be available, because it's the only one the FDA has approved, would be Pfizer. Um, The further we get down the road, as more vaccines are approved for use here in the United States, um, you will know which one of those has been approved. And yes, you're absolutely... um, Uh, you know, that information would absolutely be available to you and you would be able to make a choice. Um, For those of you who say, uh, well, you know, is it possible that um, public places like grocery stores might require somebody to show a vaccine card to gain entry? My response to that, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Like, right? I mean, they're, yeah, it's a business, people. There are requirements for entry and payment when you leave. Like, okay, so let's not get hysterical and let's recognize that, um, there are always requirements for you to access things. And so um, do I think this is going to become a requirement for things like going to the grocery store? No. And if ClickList is available where you live, then they may say that if you don't have the vaccine, then you have to order your groceries and we'll bring them out to you. All right. So all kinds of things I think will be available to people. Um, let's not panic. Let's be appreciative of the fact that a vaccine has been developed in absolutely astronomically record time. This is like landing on the moon. This is that big. Anyway, okay, uh, Adam Carrington up next from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about the Supreme Court refusing to hear the case brought by the state of Texas and 17 other states across the country. Um, And the Electoral College is going to vote today. And so we are uh, one step closer to... um, the inauguration of a new president on January the 20th. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Divorce is certainly a difficult process for mom and dad, but children go through more than their fair share of struggle as well. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens who have experienced divorce in their family sometimes feel isolated and left behind. 
Younger kids are resilient and can cope a lot more easily, but teens, especially the older ones, may feel betrayed and disconnected. To help counter these feelings of isolation, make every effort to include your teen in everything, even to the point of over-including them. Invite them to your discussions and decisions, even if it's not really necessary. This is a critical time in your relationship with your teen. Keep it intact with an extra dose of love and attention. You'll find ministry updates and lots of practical help for your family from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, and I don't even know if Adam is aware that um, Google Sheets, Google Docs, and Google Calendar, in addition to YouTube and other services, were down for a period of time this morning. And so I was, as the show host, flying blind because I rely on Google Docs, um, but they're back up. So now I know what we're talking about. I'm sure no one noticed till you told everyone. (sighs) My anxiety was fairly high for the last hour or so. All right. Um, Adam, um, the Supreme Court has made a couple of decisions. We're going to highlight one, and that is the dismissal of the case brought by the state of Texas and 17 other attorneys generals across the country. Um, Tell us what happened there and then what you think the fallout is. Right. So obviously also 126 members of the House of Representatives and the president joined this. And it was an attempt to by Texas to get uh, four of the of the swing states to not certify their elections or decertify them and to have state legislatures basically pick a new uh, probably going to be for the president, uh, a slate of electors to replace the ones that were supposed to be there. And what this petition was, and there's some confusion about this, was basically Texas asking permission to ask. I know that sounds like way more layers than is necessary, but the court, the Texas was trying to get the Supreme Court to hear this for the first time. Uh, the court normally waits till they hear an appeal from another court. They were, and so they were asking permission to ask, and basically the the court said no. Uh, that they're uh, they didn't give a lot of reasoning. They basically said uh, Texas doesn't have standing, which means they don't have the right to sue under this circumstance. And even the two justices, and this was another confusing point, Justices Alito and Thomas. Sort of, sort of said, well, we believe we're obligated by the Constitution to let you file your complaint, but even then we wouldn't have done anything to do it. So what this basically means then is the legal challenges are over as far as in court. There's a couple other lurking, but they don't really seem like they're going to go anywhere based on what the court said here and what all the other courts have said. Um, you know, the, the president has not done well in his his lawsuits at all. And it seems that if if anything is going to cause trouble or or, or, or be a point of contention, it's not going to be in the courts from here on out. Uh, the Electoral College will meet today across the country and will probably vote exactly as the maps you see on 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 the TV right now. Look, it'll be 306 to 232 as far as the Electoral College votes. And I think the only other fireworks, although I don't think it will change things that will happen, 
is January 6th when the uh, House of Representatives has to count officially the Electoral College ballots sent to them. So there'll probably be some more fireworks, but it seems that legal challenges are all but done and that, uh, again, it seems that uh, President-elect Biden will become president on January 20th, uh, despite a lot of the drama that has been going on. In other political headlines, voters in Georgia can start voting today in the two Senate runoff elections in that state. And I think that that election officially then ends on January the 5th. So January the 6th might be a pretty exciting day for political headlines. Yes, absolutely. And and, and a great, you know, uh, prognosticators who obviously don't look terribly great after this last election are trying to figure out what's going to even happen there because uh, abnormally you have two seats at the same time up in the same state. And if Democrats win both of them, which I tend to think unlikely but not impossible, uh, uh, the Senate would be 50-50 versus 51-49 or 52-48. So yes, a lot of fireworks on on those days. It seems that uh, the the political season is not going to end yet. Hmm. Um, So what can you tell us about the Jericho March? Anything? Can you tell us what it is or was or what is going on? I mean, I just thought it's 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 kind of out there as a as a subject matter talking point. And I'll just confess to you, I didn't pay attention to it over the weekend. Yeah, well, this this occurs in the book of Joshua. No, I, I'm joking, of course, on that. But it, it, <laughs> it, I mean, it's refer it's referencing that. Oh, uh, see, good job, good job. <laughs> yes, because my kids would have said, "Okay, you don't know what the Jericho March was? I mean, they marched around the city and the walls fell. Like what?" You do know. Okay. This was different. Uh, Yes. I mean, uh, this was a rally uh, that was put together by people that are both uh, identify as Christian or religious, uh, sort of ecumenical. There were uh, people across the Protestant, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, and even uh, Jewish divide. And the the rally was uh, in support of President Trump. And doing so from a particularly religious perspective, and the reason it was called the Walls of Jericho March is, as you said, the story of marching around the walls of Jericho and that the people of God, by a miraculous uh, movement of God, was able to destroy the walls and enter the Promised Land. And similarly, I think uh, the idea that God was going to work a way to allow President Trump to serve a second term. And this is very much based on an idea both of Donald Trump being divinely selected by God in a special way above normal political leaders, and the idea that uh, that he was illegitimately declared to have lost this last election and the idea of calling upon God to 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 uh, to uh, justify that that perceived at least perceived inaccuracy or that perceived injustice and so there were a lot of speakers coming up and speaking about the the, the need to support him about how God has told them that they are that that, that this is the plan for America. This is the plan for uh, the good of the world. So that that's that's at least as far as what it was. Uh, I can certainly say a little bit more about what well, I think let's, might have been some of the problems. But uh, well, yeah. let's let's just let's pause on on one of those comments that you just made. Um, people standing up claiming that God has spoken to them in direct revelation 
about a contemporary issue. Um, maybe as Christians who do not acknowledge that kind of of, of ongoing um, revelation, that 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 the Bible is really a closed, right? I mean, I can we talk about that? Yes, I I, I can step. My I didn't ask a question the very well. There. <laughs> I didn't I didn't ask the question very well, but I think you're getting the point. Yes, and I think theologically, again, I'm not trained as a theologian, but as 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 a as a church member. Yes, uh, God uh, spoke through his prophets. He spoke directly on Mount Sinai. He spoke through Christ and through the apostles, uh, and Christ being God himself. But that that has been re- that has been encapsulated in scripture. And that therefore, if the Holy Spirit moves us or works through us, he works through us, in, through, and, and, and according to Scripture, not by some new divine revelation. There's no new Bible or new book of the Bible about to be written. And I think that it is, it is problematic, and, and at the least, and dangerous at the most, to try to uh, uh, assert that God has directly spoken revelation to you, and such specific revelation. Obviously, from Scripture, we can learn things that are wrong, injustice is bad, murder is bad, things like that. But uh, to say that there is some specific revelation prophesying an event, I think, has a terrible history in the history of Christianity, and one that I don't think comports, as you said, with what our doctrine of the inerrancy, but also the supremacy of Scripture should be. Right. And for listeners who are now going to at me, I'm sure furiously, um, let's just remember that this is what Joseph Smith believed he was receiving, which was a direct revelation to God um, beyond what the scriptures of the Old and New Testament say. This is actually what the prophet Muhammad believes. Um, and all of those who follow him, that he was, that he received a direct divine revelation um, in relationship to military uh, and and governmental power in addition to a theological mandate. We call it the Quran. Um, and so when, when we have these conversations about whether or not there is specific revelation related to polif- particular political events, today we have to acknowledge that we have had these conversations in the past and we have regarded those who have brought forward such things as false prophets. And so we have to be able to have those conversations among, our, among ourselves. All right, uh, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, Adam Carrington and I are going to pivot conversations just slightly because the Supreme Court made another decision um, that is relevant to religious liberty, and it's really not getting much news coverage. So we're going to talk about it next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, um, there's an overlooked but very interesting Supreme Court decision. Um, tell us, tell us about that. Yes, uh, uh, Tanzan is 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 how what a lot of people are calling it. That's one of the litigants, and it actually has to do with uh, a, a case about Muslim uh, Muslim litigants who were detained in and in, in the airport, put on the no fly list by the FBI, and they claim as retaliation against them for not becoming informants against their community. And whether that's true or not, the question before the court was, can they sue those FBI agents if the FBI agents did something wrong for damages, basically for money, as as recompense for the, 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 the money they lost for not 
for plane tickets, for not being able to, to fly for their work. And the government was trying to say that under RIFRA, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which many might know from things like Hobby, the you know Hobby Lobby used this to protect themselves and other religious groups, um, the government had tried to say that there were much more limited ways that people who have been who have been harmed because of their religious beliefs, what they could do to make things right that this was not one of the options. And it's interesting that the court not only said that under RIFRA, this is one of the options, it also said it did so ate nothing. Justice Barrett didn't, didn't participate. And I think that's notable, you know, uh, it may seem kind of mundane, but I think it's notable for two reasons. One, that, um, it, 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 as the court pointed out, there might be instances where money damages, getting money back is the only way that you could protect or make right someone's religious liberty being violated, in this case with the Muslim men, or maybe uh, government agents ransack a church when they shouldn't and, and there's damage, that this makes it so there are a wider array of ways for people who have been discriminated against by the government based on their religion to, to, to basically get justice. And what I think is also interesting is that this wasn't a 5-4 decision or a 4-3 or anything like that. It was 8 nothing that all of the justices agreed that this is necessary to make sure that religious adherents, uh, Christians, Muslim, or, or any, any other in the United States, have a full range of ways to protect themselves from religious discrimination. And given how things are going, and given the, the, the tensions and animosities against people of faith, the fact that the court affirmed this broader array of ways to do so, I think, is, is notable, and I think will actually have a, a good effect as far as how people can protect themselves in the future with a lot of litigation, of course, coming up against people of faith. I'm reminded, um, Adam, that um, when, when we work to ensure the protection of people who do not believe um, or who believe things very, very differently than, uh, than I believe as a Christian. Um, when we ensure that their rights are protected, we are also ensuring that down the road, our rights are protected as well. And so and um, when as an evangelical Christian, I might you know, look into the future and be fearful that I might not be, uh, that there might be federal agents who say, oh, no, you can't fly, um, that I would be able to look back at this and say, um, that's going to cost you. Like the federal government, like that's not who we are in the United States of America. Um, we don't, and we don't, our federal officers can't say that because I believe I have one set of beliefs that I can't participate as a citizen. And I would even add, Carmen, if I could real quickly, the Religious yeah. Freedom Restoration Act itself that Christians are leaning on so much now, it was passed in 1993 to protect it was it came out of a case where Native Americans were being people felt discriminated against for their religious beliefs. Yet it has been a bulwark for protections for Christians decades down the road. So your what you're saying has not is not only prescient for what might happen; it's been proven true already for for this law itself. All right, what else? Uh, what else are you watching? What should we be looking at and praying uh, praying about this week? Well, actually, I think this dovetails well into it is Pres President-elect Biden's nomination of California Attorney General Xavier Becerra 
as head of health and human services. And if you remember, to connect it all together, the Hobby Lobby case was about health and human services, that department of the government going after them for their religious beliefs regarding the contraception mandate in the Affordable Care Act. And Becerra is someone who is infamous within both religious liberty and pro-life circles for how aggressively he's gone after people like the Sisters of the Poor, how he went after the, the, the people that exposed the body trafficking by Planned Parenthood for in unborn babies, how he has joined about every lawsuit to strike down other states' pro-life legislation. He has been a zealous advocate for abortion on demand and against religious liberty. And so I think uh, I, I thought of his nomination in light of the case we were just talking about, that we, if he gets approved, and it's not entirely sure he will, but if he does, then it is very likely these kinds of protections are going to be all the more necessary because he will not be a friend to the to the to the pro-life movement or to the religious liberty those who who value the religious liberty so in some ways i think that 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 those two go together Amen. Um, for more on that particular topic, if you missed my conversation with Matthew Hawkins on Friday, we uh, we talked about that as well. We also touched on it on Thursday. Um, so just a just a reminder that um, obviously lots of people that we talk with here on Mornings with Carmen are concerned about the nomination of of, of Javier or Xavier uh, Becerra um, out of California to the post of um, a cabinet secretary, particularly in uh, in this health and human services area. All right, um, Adam, let's leave it right there. Um, Thank you. Merry Christmas. And um, I think we talk with you again next in the new year. I look forward to seeing you all in 2021 and Merry Christmas to everybody. Likewise. We'll be right back. All righty. Hey, one clarification, and that is that um, I recognize that many, many, many of us are praying for the integrity, regardless of the outcome, the integrity of the U.S. electoral process. I recognize that lots of people participated over the weekend um, in praying for that. And um, and I recognize that that is uh, absolutely essential. So uh, no condemnation for those of us uh, praying in these ways, just a recognition that we have to be uh, careful who we're listening to and and how we are advocating, because the public witness is often covering not the quiet prayers of those of us uh, kneeling in the closet, but the public advocacy of those who are saying things that are, you know, frankly, theologically suspect. So that's what I was trying to highlight. All right. Another hour. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.